All right, let's talk about Dr. Faustus. Uh, this is a play written by Christopher Marlowe, uh, who was w- one of the first great dramatists of the Elizabethan stage, which was one of the great periods of drama in world history. Now, the theater of Elizabethan times, and for Christopher Marlowe and later for William Shakespeare, was very different than we think of the theater today. In some ways, it's almost the opposite. Today, when you go to the theater, it's a very very posh, very high society, high culture event. Uh, The theaters are usually in the center of town. They're in downtown. Uh, Downtown Houston has the uh, uh, one of the largest theater districts in the country. It's only New York and Chicago have bigger, uh, more theater space in downtown than Houston does. And so you go down there, you go at night. Uh, The plays that you're seeing have a limited run. They will run for a number of performances. If it's on Broadway, uh, they become, and they become popular, like, you know, the musical Hamilton, they will run forever. You know, they'll keep playing the same play over and over and over. Uh, So you go at night, you sit in a theater, uh, the audience is on one side, and the play is on the other. When the play starts, the lights go down on the audience, and they come up on the stage, the curtain parts, and you watch the, the play there. Well, all of that was different in Shakespeare's time, in, and in Marlowe's time. Uh, the playhouses were not in the center of the of the city. They were on the outskirts. They were on the margins. They were not technically in the city of London because it was illegal to have uh, something as as shady as a theater inside the the city of London. So they were in in areas that were called the liberties. Uh, this is the place where you would have the uh, taverns and brothels and uh, bear baiting and those kinds of, of entertainments. So it was not called culturally central, it was kind of culturally uh, at, at the margins, though enormously popular. Uh, going to a, a play in, in, in Elizabethan times was more like going to a rock concert than it is like going to a play today. Now, when they went to the place, they went in the afternoon because, you know, they didn't have electricity, so they used the sunlight. They had these outdoor theaters, which were open, open air, uh, and in your in the Norton Anthology, at the, in the appendix, you'll see a very good illustration of an Elizabethan playhouse. And you'll see it's a big round structure, the Shakespeare's Globe or uh, the Rose Theater where uh, Marlowe's plays would have been performed. Uh, and it's three stories high, and there's a, a thrust stage at one point uh, where the and at, at the stage back there are two doors for entrances and exits, and a discovery space, a kind of a curtained area where you could pull back and reveal something. That's what happens at the beginning of Faustus. The chorus ends, and he pulls back the curtain and reveals, discovers uh, Faustus sitting at his uh, studies. Uh, it, It also had a second uh, floor. It had a little balcony area. That's where Juliet would have played her balcony scene. Uh, there was no scenery. Uh, it's not again. It's not like today where there are elaborate sets that that are made. Uh, it's just a bare stage. So all of the scene painting had to be done in the dialogue. You, they, in fact, in the Renaissance, uh, you never hear the expression to see a play. It was always 
to hear a play. It was for them primarily an auditory experience. Uh, and so you had to listen and pay attention to, to know where the scene was. Uh, and in some cases, the scene was less important than the, the eloquence of the language. Uh, the actors had, you know, they didn't have any elaborate settings, but they had very elaborate costumes. Uh, all of the commentators on Elizabethan theater talk about how uh, impressive the costumes were. Uh, also, the, the actors were all men. The women's roles were played by uh, pre-adolescent boys uh, in, in drag, basically, uh, because it would have been improper to have a woman display herself in public on a stage. You know, apparently it was proper to have a, a little boy dressed up as a woman, pretending to be a woman on stage, but that's a whole other matter. Um, also, when you're going there, you're part of an audience, and you can see all of the other audience. It's, again, it's a round structure, uh, so wherever you are in the theater... You're looking at the stage, but you're also aware of the audience. It was very much more uh, participatory in that way. Uh, also, unlike today, there was no intermission. Uh, today, in the middle of a play, they, the curtain goes down, the lights come up, and everybody goes outside to uh, buy concessions and go to the bathroom. Uh, they didn't have that. Uh, the uh, plays would run continuously, just like a movie. Uh, they sold concessions during it. There would be uh, uh, people who would sell nuts and fruits during the show, but it was, there was no intermission. Uh, also, the, the repertoire of the plays uh, didn't run today, like, you know, kind of you know, worth thousands and thousands of performances of a single hit. Uh, it was always something new. Uh, it, it, the theaters were open uh, six days a week, and there, if you went there every day, you would see six new plays. Now they might repeat really popular ones over the over you know the course of time, but there was a continual churn of new things. It was more like a television schedule than a theater schedule today. Uh, so in all of those ways, it was a very different kind of environment, and. Marlowe was one of the first great uh, playwrights of this great theater in Elizabethan times. And this is probably his most famous play, Dr. Faustus. Now, it begins with a chorus. This is an actor who just comes out and, and as you see, tells you the, the background here. Uh, he tells He's going to tell the form of, form of Faustus' fortunes. And talks about how he was born, his parents of base stock. Uh, he comes to Rhodes. He's uh, educated at Wittenberg. Now, Wittenberg was a famously uh, heavy philosophical university. That's where a lot of you know deep thinking was going on. It would be you know like today, like saying he he was at Harvard uh, or MIT. Uh, this is a, a kind of a serious heavyweight university. Um, and it talks about how you know he he excelled there, and uh, line twenty in the chorus um, in in heavenly matters of theology, till swollen with cunning of a self conceit, his waxen wings did mount above his reach, and melting heaven conspired his overthrow, for falling to a devilish exercise and glutted more with learning's golden gifts, he surfeits upon cursed necromancy. 
nothing so sweet as magic is to him, which he prefers before his chiefest bliss. And this, the man that sits that in his study sits. So notice the 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 language there: glutted, surfeits, sweet. Uh, there's a kind of all of these are relating to appetite, to food, uh, to gluttony. Uh, it, it, that's the kind of way it describes his love for uh, necromancy, for black magic. And the play proper starts with a long soliloquy by Faustus. Now, the soliloquy is a convention of the Elizabethan stage that is maybe unfamiliar today. We don't have anything really comparable to that. But basically, the the actor is uh, saying a speech out loud that expresses his inner thoughts. So it's both, it, we're both kind of overhearing his thoughts, but it's also rhetorically addressed to the audience. Oftentimes, uh, soliloquy will be the, the character letting us into what he's thinking. Uh, and we'll see the, the use of soliloquy that uh, Shakespeare makes in, in Hamlet when we get to that. So Faustus begins... He says, study thy, uh, settle thy studies, Faustus, and begin to sound the depths of what thou wilt profess, having commenced to be a divine in show. So he, he's, he's deciding, what am I going to study? You know, what's my major going to be? Uh, he's already been quite a successful student, so he's, he's kind of doing his, his advanced work here. And he says, uh, the end of uh, yeah, level at the end of every art, and live and die in Aristotle's works. So he starts off with philosophy with Aristotle, um, and says his his sweet analytics. He talks about logic and rhetoric. Uh, it is thou has ravished me, uh, and says bene desire est finis logicus is to dispute well logic's chiefest end. Now, most of the, uh, any anyone who was educated in England at this time was educated in Latin. That's what you learned in grammar school was Latin. So uh, now not everybody was educated in grammar school, but they still had probably picked up Latin uh, from uh, from the courts, uh, from the, the from the church. Uh, so this would not have needed a lot of of uh, they would not have needed footnotes to follow along, especially famous quotes like this that uh, Faustus is quoting. Um, so he says, "Well, okay, the end of logic is to dispute well, to argue well." And Faustus says, well, okay, I, I already know how to argue. So if that's the, the end, that's the sum of philosophy, I've achieved that. Well, we'll see what else they've got. So then he turns to medicine, to, to Galen, uh, with uh, you know another Latin quote, uh, uh, ubi uh, denet philosophus ibi insipit medicius. Uh, be a physician, Faustus. Heap up gold and be eternized for some wondrous cure. Summum bonum medicane sanitas. The end of physic is our body's health. And he says, well, I'm healthy. Uh, I don't need any medicine anymore. Now, he's kind of missing the point, isn't he? Uh, the, the, yes, the end of, of physic is our body's health. The point of medicine is to make people healthy. He says, well, I'm already healthy. 
So I don't need to do it. He says, I already know how to argue well about philosophy, but he hasn't applied those arguments the way you do in philosophy. He hasn't applied the knowledge of how to make other people healthy. So in this, he's he's kind of running through these different fields of learning. And I think we're supposed to understand that he's kind of making these kind of clever, over-clever arguments about it, but missing the essential nature of them. And I think that's a real key to Faustus' character. Um, And he says about medicine, Couldst thou make men to live eternally, or being dead, raise them to life again? Then this profession were to be esteemed. So uh, notice also, I mean, besides missing the point, there's an enormous ambition going on here. Well, I would go into medicine if I could make people live forever or raise the dead. And said, well, let's try something else. We'll try the law, uh, Justinian. And he, he, as the Latin quote here, and the footnote will, will tell you, you know, if something is bequeathed to two persons, one shall have the thing itself, the other something of equal value. So this is kind of this very kind of, of uh, uh, fidgety, uh, fussy, legal niceties that he's looking at. Uh, though interestingly, it's about a will. It's about death. Um, and he's not interested in this kind of petty thing. He's going to go on. Well, okay, next he's going to try theology. Um, he says, uh, line 37 He looks at Jerome's Bible, the Vulgate Bible, the Latin translation of the Bible. Faustus, view it well. uh, And he says, the reward of sin is death. That's hard. And he says, uh, if, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and there's no truth in us. Why, then belike, we must sin and so, consequently, die. Aye, we must die an everlasting death. What doctrine call you this? Que sera, sera? What will be, shall be? Divinity, a Jew. So, again, he's missing the point. As the footnote points out to you, uh, you know, the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that uh, uh, Bible quote is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, this uh, notice that's exactly the same uh, partial quotation that you got from despair in the Fairy Queen. Uh, it, it's kind of looking at the first half of it, but not getting the whole picture. And that's what Faustus is doing here. He has this partial vision of things and doesn't see the broader implications. He, he's as as brilliant as he is. As kind of as, you know, he seems to have command of all of these different fields of learning, but he hasn't gotten the essence or the real point of any of them. But what he does want to turn to is magic. He says, oh, what a world of profit and delight, of power, of honor, of omnipotence is promised to the studious artisan. All things that move between the quiet poles shall be at my command. Emperors and kings are but obeyed in their several provinces, nor can they raise the wind or rend the clouds. But his dominion that exceeds in this stretcheth as far as doth the mind of man. A sound magician is a mighty god. Here, Faustus, try thy brains to gain a deity. So, here we see the, the, the enormous ambition 
that Faustus has. What attracts him to magic, what makes that better than all these others, is that it has no limits. All these other fields are limited. They have a particular thing, and he has uh, pointed out, uh, often with a kind of misreading or a logical trick, some l- limitation or uh, wall that these different fields of learning come up against. But the magician can do anything. It's just, he stretches as far as with the mind of man. If you can imagine it, it can happen. So he has his servant, uh, Wagner, go and get uh, Valdez and Cornelius, um, these two uh, men who are going to help him. And then we get, it comes in, and they come in several times, you'll notice, good angel and evil angel. Now, this was a convention from an older theatrical tradition in the Middle Ages. We didn't read any of these, but they had morality tales where there would be a, a figure uh, sometimes he was called every man or mankind. He was kind of the generic human being, and various virtues and vices would tempt him or try to lead him out of temptation. Uh, and this, we still have this idea. You, you see this in 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 cartoons sometimes, even with you know, the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other. Uh, that's what's going on here. They're kind of uh, externalizing this internal conflict that he has. Um, and notice that they really that they Faustus does not react directly to them. It's like they're there and they're kind of part of his, you know, they're uh, talking to him, but he doesn't respond. He just goes back to his ideas about magic, how I am glutted with conceit of this. Shall I make spirits fetch me what I please? So he's getting, resolve me of all ambiguities. He's thinking of all of the things that he can do once he has all of this great magic power. And when, uh, Valdez and Cornelius comes in. He tells them, Know that your words have won me at the last to practice magic and concealed arts. Yet not your words only, but mine own fantasy. Uh, now notice even here, he, it, it's himself. It's his own fantasy. He, he needs them to kind of get him into the black magic game. But um, he says it's more his fantasy than their arguments. And he says, it's magic, magic that hath ravished ravished me. Uh, so this is what kind of carried him away. And again, the idea of, of unlimited power seems to be what it is. Uh, Cornelius tells him, around line 137, the miracles that magic will perform will make thee vow to study nothing else. He that is grounded in astrology, enriched with tongues, well seen in minerals, hath all the principles magic doth require. So he says, you, you've got the foundations. You know astrology, you know languages, you know uh, enough science about the minerals and chemistry for alchemy and all that. Um, and that is all the basis that you will need. And he says, he asks him, tell me, Faustus, what shall we three want? That is, what shall we three lack? Faustus says, nothing. There will be nothing that we that we want, that we lack. So he invites them to come to dinner with him, and you know, fill him, give him all of the you know the, the books he'll need to start his career in magic. Now, the next scene is a short comic scene, and you'll notice that this is written in prose. Uh, the first scene is written in blank verse. That's unrhymed iambic pentameter. 
it's iambic pentameter just like you get in a sonnet, but no rhyme scheme. So it's a very natural kind of, of language, but a kind of heightened language. And very often, prose was used as a kind of, uh, to shift the tone. Uh, often as here, you have the, the kind of high scenes, the high characters talking in verse, and the, the lower working class characters talking in prose. So here we have a, a couple of scholars who are looking for uh, Faustus, and they ask, um, uh, how now, Syra? Uh, Syra is a, a term that you would say to a, a servant, a kind of an inferior. Uh, how now, Syra? where's thy master? God in heaven knows. Why? Dost not thou know? Yes, I know, but that follows not. Go to, Sira, leave your jesting, and tell us where he is. That follows not necess- necessary by force of argument, that you, being licentiates, should stand upon it. Therefore, acknowledge your error, and be attentive. Now, what Wagner is doing here is, is he's being overly literal, Right? Uh, he said, they say, where's your master? Oh, God in heaven knows. What, you don't know? He says, ah, that's not a logic, logically follow from what I said. I said, God in heaven knows. I didn't say that I didn't know. And actually, I do know. So you were in error and need to uh, 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 acknowledge that. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's the kind of a very standard kind of verbal humor, particularly in the, in the Renaissance drama, uh, the kind of over, taking something over literally. Uh, it happens a lot today, too. But notice that in a way, it's a, a echo of what Faustus himself was doing. He was taking those Latin quotations over literally. The end of philosophy is to argue well. Well, I can argue well. And uh, Wagner's uh, uh, little joke here is a comic uh, parallel to the very serious thing that Faustus was doing in the previous scene. Uh, that is what we'll see happens throughout here. And it was very common in the Renaissance to set up these uh, main plots and subplots that thematically reflected on each other. They were doing the same things, and it's like almost musically playing the same tune in a different key. Um, and he finally tells them that he's, you know, his master is at dinner, and the scholars realize he's he's dining with these two uh, people who know black magic, and he's, he's uh, in, in trouble. And in scene three, we see he is he's beginning his practice of magic. He draws this magic circle, uh, and he talks about how the the, the, the name of the of, of the of God and Satan are in there, and he has this long Latin incantation, and he calls on Mephistopheles, the the devil, who comes in, and the first thing he does. The, the devil comes in, and we don't know how they would represent this on the Elizabethan stage, but in some kind of devil costume, some kind of monstrous form. And Faustus says, I charge thee to return and change thy shape. Thou art too ugly to attend on me. Go and return an old Franciscan friar. That holy shape becomes a devil best. So he's making a little joke. He said, you know, come dressed as a as a monk, 
right, as a friar. Uh, and that kind of is ironic for a, for a devil to be dressed that way. So in comes Mephistopheles in that form. And Faustus says, I charge thee, wait upon me whilst I live to do whatever Faustus shall command. And Mephistopheles answers, line 44, uh, or actually line, line 40, he says, I am a servant to great Lucifer and may not follow thee without his leave. No more than he commands, than he, he commands must we perform. Did he not charge thee to appear to me? No, I came now hither of mine own accord. So he's saying, well, wait, didn't, didn't Lucifer tell you to come here because of my great magic? And he says, oh no. And he says, did not my conjuring speeches raise thee? Speak. He says, that was the cause, but yet per accident. That wasn't the essential cause. That was just accidental. It was just incidental that you had all this magic and everything. Uh, for when we hear one rack the name of God, abjure the scriptures and his Savior Christ, we fly in hope to get his glorious soul. Uh, and says, therefore, uh, thou, the shortest cut for conjuring is stoutly to abjure the Trinity. So from the very beginning, Mephistopheles is kind of, of, of you know, letting the wind out of uh, Faustus' ambitions. It wasn't all of this kind of incredible learning that he did, and he studied up and he learned how to be a magician, and he made the magic circle, and he conjured the devil. So, no, all you had to do was say that you you reject God, and the devil will be right there. You don't have to. You don't have to go to Wittenberg and get a degree or anything. And we see uh, that Faustus is very skeptical. Uh, he says that this word "damnation" terrifies not him, not himself, uh, for he confounds hell in Elysium. Now, Elysium was the classical idea of the afterlife. So he's saying, well, Christian or, uh, you know, the pagans had an idea about afterlife. We have, you know, it's all kind of the same thing. It's not really, there's not really hell and damnation and all of that. Uh, it's just another story like the, like the Greek mythology. Um, and he begins to question Mephistopheles uh, about all this damnation stuff. He says, oh, line uh, 73, where are you damned, Mephistopheles, in hell, Faustus? How comes it then that thou art out of hell? He's being very clever. Oh, wait, so you're damned to hell? This looks like you're out of hell to me. And Mephistopheles replies, why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkst thou that I, who saw the face of God, and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss? Oh, Faustus, leave these frivolous demands which strike a terror to my fainting soul. And so Mephistopheles is telling him, hell is not a physical place. It's a spiritual condition. He is in hell because he saw the face of God and rejected it. That's that's hell. But Faustus doesn't get that. He, you can tell, he believes that all of this stuff about 
hell and damnation and all that is, as he says, just a, a fairy tale. It's just like the, the it's a myth. Um, and he, you know, just skips over all of that. Uh, says, what is, what is great Mephistopheles so passionate for being deprived of the joys of heaven? Learn thou a fast, Faustus, manly fortitude. You know, be a man, you know, uh, man up here. Uh, I don't care about missing out on heaven. I'm, you know, selling my soul to the devil. Ha ha. He, even here, he doesn't really take it seriously. And he says, line 90, say he... That is, he, Faustus tends to refer to himself in the third person. Say he surrenders up to him his soul. So he's surrendering his soul to Lucifer. So, so if he will spare him four and twenty years, letting him live in all voluptuousness, having thee ever to attend on me, to give me whatsoever I shall ask, to tell me whatsoever I demand to slay mine enemies and aid my friends and always be obedient to my will. So he's going to get for his soul, he gets 24 years of uh, Mephistopheles as his servant that he can control. Um, And he says near the end of the scene, line 103, had I as many souls as there be stars, I'd give them all for Mephistopheles. By him I'll be great emperor of the world. Uh, and then he goes off and talks about all the great things he'll do. So, again, this is his ambition. Uh, he doesn't take the threat of damnation and hell seriously. Uh, he just wants the earthly power that he can have with Mephistopheles. Now, scene four is, again, uh, repeating some of the ideas from the previous scene in a comic register. So, here we have Wagner and the clown. Now, the clown doesn't mean like Bozo, you know, kind of dressed up in makeup. It's just kind of a, a, a comic bumpkin character, a kind of a dumb guy. And Wagner wants the clown to, he says the clown would, is so hungry that he would sell his, give his soul to the devil for a shoulder of mutton. And the clown says, not so, good friend, by our lady. I need have it well roasted and good sauce to it if I pay so dear. So this, again, uh, underscores the kind of comic thing of, well, no, I wouldn't sell my soul for a a good roast mutton, a a raw mutton. It would have to be very well roasted and, and, uh, you know, well cooked for me to sell my soul. And Wagner wants the clown to serve him. And says, if, if you don't serve me, uh, I will have my familiars tear thee to pieces. I'll turn the, fl- the fleas on thee to familiars and have them tear me to pieces. And the clown says, well, they're already too familiar with me already. And it says, uh, line 43, I will cause two devils presently to fetch thee away, Balliol and Belcher. And so the two devils come in and chase him round, and that kind of scares him into it. Uh, again, this is a kind of a comic scene of conjuring. Uh, it's, it's a comic version of the master-servant relationship between Faustus and Mephistopheles. Uh, it's the same ideas expressed in a, in a lighter comic way. Um, now, scene five, Faustus begins, Now, Faustus, must thou needs be damned, and canst thou not be saved? So we see that Faustus here is taking the idea of damnation a lot more seriously than he was earlier. And we see this kind of 
vacillation goes on throughout the play from kind of reject being having this very kind of intellectual skepticism where he he doesn't think uh, damnation is serious to being very guilt-ridden and worried about it and he says uh, in this little soliloquy that the god thou servest is thine own appetite uh, and again, we get the good and evil angels come in. Uh, he's waiting for Mephistopheles, who, who comes in at the stroke of midnight, of course. Um, and it says, line 30, Now tell, what says Lucifer thy lord? And Mephistopheles replies, That I shall wait on Faustus whilst he lives, so he will buy my service with his soul. And he has to write the contract in his own blood um, and the blood congeals it won't uh, he, he cuts the he cuts his arm to write it but it says line 62 my blood congeals and I can write no more and Mephistopheles don't worry I'll get a little fire and we'll heat that right up and get that blood flowing and write again when Mephistopheles leaves we get another little soliloquy what might the staying of my blood portend? Is it unwilling I should write this bill? Why streams it not, that I may write afresh? Faustus gives to thee his soul. Ah, there it stayed. Why shouldst thou not? Is not thy soul thine own? Then write again, Faustus gives to thee his soul. So he doesn't understand, you know, his very body is rebelling against this uh, idea. But he does manage to to write the the contract in blood, and he says, uh, "Consummatum est; uh, it is finished." Uh, that's uh, you know that's kind of blasphemous because those are the final words of Christ on the cross, um, and he says, "Homo fuge." This is "O man, fly! Whither should I fly?" That's the that's the inscription he sees he, that uh, is made on his arm. He says, "If unto God, he'll throw me down to hell." Um, and then in comes Faustus with the uh, crowns, rich apparel gives who uh, gives to Faustus. Um, so we keep seeing these moments of 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 doubt uh, that come through with uh, with Faustus. Uh, but he always comes back, you know, Mephistopheles always kind of brings him back into the fold. And look at uh, line 115 in uh, scene 5. Faustus says, tell me, where is the place that men call hell? Under the heaven. Aye, but whereabouts? Within the bowels of these elements, where we are tortured and remain forever. Hell hath no limits, nor is it circumscribed in one self place, for where we are is hell, and where hell is, there must we ever be. And to conclude, when all the world dissolves and every creature shall be purified, all places shall be hell that is not heaven. So again, Faustus wants a, a kind of a physical place for hell, and Mephistopheles keeps telling him, no, hell is a theological, psychological condition. Uh, it, it, there's no limits to it. There's not a physical place. You can't dig down deep enough into the earth and find it. And 
then Faustus tells him something really remarkable. Come, I think hell's a fable. And he says, I think so, till, thy, till experience change thy mind. What? Thinkst thou then that Faustus shall be damned? I have necessity, for here's the scroll wherein thou hast given thy soul to Lucifer. I and body too, but what of that? Thinkst thou that Faustus is so fond to imagine that after this life there is any pain? Tush, these are trifles and mere old wives' tales. But Faustus, I am an instance to prove the contrary, for I am damned and am now in hell. So here we get Faustus's uh, skepticism confronting the reality of this demon. He's saying, oh, uh, hell, that's just a fairy tale they tell kids. Uh, nobody really believes there's anything in the afterlife. And, um, and Mephistopheles is like, hey, look, you just signed a, a contract in your blood with the devil. You're talking to a demon from hell right now. You really still don't believe in hell? Uh, now, the next thing that uh, Faustus says to Mephistopheles is that, let me have a wife, the fairest maid in Germany, for I am wanton and lascivious and cannot live without a wife. And here, the very first thing that Faustus asks Mephistopheles to do for him, he doesn't do. He says, uh, I pretty Faustus, talk not of a wife. Now, of course, the devil can't give him a wife because that's... Uh, marriage is a holy sacrament so he can't the, the demon can't do that um, so what he does is he brings out a woman uh, a, a devil dressed like a woman with fireworks and tells him marriage is but a ceremonial toy so Mephistopheles rejects the sacrament of marriage and he Mephistopheles then begins to give him this series of books that have all of this wonderful knowledge. And that's, you know, basically Mephist Faustus is a scholar. He, he wants to know and learn all of these things. And as they're talking, one that talks about all of the, the places of the, of the, of the world, uh, line 177, Faustus says, When I behold the heavens, then I repent. And curse thee, wicked Mephistopheles, because thou hast deprived me of those joys. Why, Faustus, thinkst thou that heaven is such a glorious thing? I tell thee, tis not half so fair as thou, or any man that breathes on earth. How proves thou that? It was made for man, therefore is man more excellent. If it were made for man, twas made for me. I will renounce this magic and repent." And then the good and evil angels come in. They have a little debate. And Faustus says, my heart's so hardened, I cannot repent. So here again, we get this, this vacillation between him. He's always kind of, and I think as you know, an audience, you're kind of going forth, well, you know, which way is he going to go? You know, uh, how is he going to, is he going to stay with this? Is he going to get out of it? And there's this constant soul searching. Look at uh, line 200. And long ere this, I should have slain myself, had not sweet pleasure conquered deep despair. Have I not made blind Homer sing to me of Alexander's love and Onan's death? And hath not he that built the walls of Thebes with ravishing sound of his melodious harp 
made music with my Mephistopheles? Why should I die then, or basely despair? I am resolved. Faustus shall ne'er repent. So he, he kind of he almost talks himself into repenting and then talks himself out of it. Then he gets into this conversation uh, with Faustus. Tell me, are there many heavens above the moon? Are all celestial bodies but one globe, as is the substance of this centric earth? And now this is a long discussion that they go through, and you really have to notice that they're, they're talking in prose now. You kind of start talking prose. Uh, they kind of get down to these technical details. It's no longer the soaring poetry. Uh, they're talking about uh, uh, astrological knowledge. And this would be today, this is very cutting-edge stuff about how the the, the heavens are uh, made to uh, fit together. And uh, it, today it would be like, you know, these two eggheads having a, a conversation about quantum mechanics. This is kind of very out-there knowledge. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that Faustus is interested in. Then he says, line 240, well, I am answered. He gets all these questions about the nature of the, of the solar system and the universe answered and says, tell me, who made the world? I will not. Sweet Mephistopheles, tell me. Move me not, for I will not tell thee. Villain, have I not bound thee to tell me anything? I, that is not against our kingdom, but this is. Thinks thou, think thou on hell, Faustus, for thou art damned. Now, of course, why can't he tell him who made the world? Because he can't speak the name of God. Um, so, it's interesting that Faustus, you saw in the opening soliloquy, he thought all of these fields of knowledge were too limited. And what he does almost immediately with Mephistopheles is run up to the limits of what Mephistopheles can do for him. He can't give him a wife. He can't tell him who made the world. He, he's kind of, uh, Faustus is always pushing the boundaries, testing the boundaries, uh, seeing how far he can go. Uh, and to distract him, Lucifer uh, brings in a, uh, a parade of the seven deadly sins. And we see each of them, uh, uh, you know, pride, covetousness, wrath, envy, gluttony, sloth, lechery. Uh, all of them come in, and the, it, this is all a comic scene. Again, you'll notice it's, it's, it's all in prose. Um, notice, too, I think it's interesting that the longest speaking part here is gluttony. Uh, there's something very much about Faustus that is about gluttony, uh, about this, this endless, bottomless hunger and desire that he has. Uh, that is... Um, and that that language of his soul being surfeited or glutted it happened in the chorus and it happens again and again throughout the play um, and this does distract him in fact he says uh, line uh, 330 oh this feeds my soul uh, there's that, that language coming in again and scene 6 is once again a kind of comic parody of what we've seen in the previous scene. Here we get uh, uh, two new characters, Robin, uh, who is an, an, an ostler, uh, who takes care of the stables, and his, uh, his, boss, his boss, Rafe. And Robin comes in with a book, just the way we've seen 
uh, Faustus with a book. He says, he's, I've stolen one of Dr. Faustus' conjuring books. And in faith, I mean to search some circles for my own use. Now will I make all the maidens in our parish dance at my pleasure, stark naked before me. And so by that means, I shall see more than e'er I felt or saw yet. So he's got these ambitions too. What's he going to do with the magic power? Will he make all uh, all the women in town dance naked in front of him? Um, and uh, Rafe come, is calling him, comes in, says, "Pretty, come away. Says, keep out, keep out, or else you are blown up. You are dismembered, Rafe. Keep out, for I am about a roaring piece of work. Come, what dost thou with that same book? Thou canst not read." So he's, he's illiterate, but he thinks this book, just the fact of it, has some kind of magic power. Um, and again, a lot of what these these comic scenes are doing, they're, they're taking the air out of the, the kind of grandiose uh, things that we see with Faustus himself. Um, and that blending of, of dramatic and comic tones is, again, very characteristic of Renaissance drama. Uh, it's sometimes called comic relief, but I think that's really a misleading term for it. Um, it, it it's in some ways, it's comic intensification. It, it enhances, it intensifies the, the emotions and the themes and ideas. It doesn't kind of relieve or lessen them. Um, but anyway, that's, a, that's another story. Uh, all right, well, that's the first half of Dr. Faustus. He has decided to sell his soul to the, the devil. Uh, and the second half of the play, uh, a few things I want you to concentrate on. One is, what does he do with this new power? We've seen that uh, a couple of his uh, requests have been rejected by Mephistopheles, but Mephistopheles will do some things for him. He will do some things with Mephistopheles' help. And what are they? What are, you know, with this grand ambition, what does he accomplish with the power of the of the devil? Um, and also look at the a couple of things at the end of the play to pay particular attention to. One is a, a scene where uh, Mephistopheles brings forth the image of Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman who ever lived, and Faustus has a long speech to her. It's one of the most famous speeches in the play. And I want you to think about what what is Faustus thinking about in that speech? What is the attraction of, of Helen of Troy for him? Uh, and why is that uh, significant at that point in the play that Mephistopheles presents this to him? And then in the very end of the play, in the last scene, uh, you will see that the term of the bargain that he has with Mephistopheles has ended, and he's waiting for his damnation. And there's a long soliloquy that he has there. And think about how that traces out the arguments in his mind. What What is uh, Faustus thinking as this uh, moment of doom approaches? And Think about how it's actually dramatized his final his final moments. Uh, so we'll be looking at all of that uh, good stuff next time. Uh, as always, you can email me at drmarkwomack at gmail dot com with any questions. Thanks for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.